Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Mark chapter 4. And we'll be reading um, from verse 35. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. The other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. As we finish up chapter 4 in our walk through the book of Mark, there have been two words as I've been studying this text that keep resonating with me over and over again. And the words are, grow up. Grow up. These are the two words that we often will use when we talk to our children, when they're struggling to embrace that next level of maturity in their life. We tell them to to grow up. We also use those words with adults who perpetually want to be teenagers, who, who, who want to shirk responsibility. Maybe they don't want to get a job, or maybe they don't want to take care of themselves, or maybe they just don't want to face that adult decision that they have to face. And, and we have to remind them, sometimes gently and sometimes a little less gently, that they need to grow up. And the reason why we, we use these words is that throughout of all of history and all of humanity, there is this natural, normal, expected journey that everyone is supposed to take from immaturity to maturity. And when, when a child is born... He is born, or she is born, completely dependent. But from that very first moment, there's already an expectation, already a looking forward to this child to begin to grow. We look for those predictable milestones. If you're a mom, there are certain milestones you're looking for, right? For the baby to sleep through the night is one of them, right? Or for the baby to hold his or her home bottle, that's a big help, right? Rolling over, crawling, walking, talking, feeding themselves. They're just a natural progression in life. And and though we enjoy them to be babies, we expect for them to to progress and to grow up. We we expect that babies become toddlers, and toddlers will become children, and children preteens, and preteens, heaven help us, become teenagers. And And then teenagers become young adults, and young adults become mature adults. That's the natural expectation that we have for everyone, is for everyone to grow up, right? And when people don't, or they refuse to mature, we naturally encourage them and sometimes push them to grow up because that's what they're supposed to do, right? Where people are supposed to grow up. That is, that is the natural order of things. That is right, that is good, and that is healthy, right? And for someone to refuse to mature and grow up, it is not right and good and healthy. And so we expect that people need to grow up. But just as there's an expectation for people to grow up physically or even emotionally, there's an expectation in the Christian faith for for Christians to likewise grow up. There's an expectation for believers to grow towards spiritual maturity. 
Once a person is born again, they are spiritually an infant, but there's an expectation that this person will grow just like they did physically, that they would begin to grow up spiritually speaking. There's a natural progression to that. You have people who are, who are just born again, brand new Christians who really don't know very much, but, as they, but, but, they, but they will grow and develop as they go to church, as they, they go to Bible studies, as they fellowship with other believers, as they pray, as they get into the Word of God, they will begin to mature in their faith, right? Growing from infanthood to childhood to hopefully, you know, adulthood. And so they grow in their understanding of who God is, is, is how they grow spiritually. As the Apostle Paul says, in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 11, he says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. And I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. In other words, I grew up. Right? And he encourages us to do the same thing. He says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Right? Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. And he even tells us the purpose of the church is for, for spiritual maturity. He says that, that Jesus gave to the church the leaders that it has, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, and, and the purpose was to equip the saints for a purpose. And that purpose was for the ministry, so to equip them for the works of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, and hear this, until we attain the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, full maturity, right? to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ, so we become more like Jesus, so that we may no longer be children. There's an expectation, brothers and sisters, from God that we grow up, spiritually speaking. There's an expectation for us to, to progress toward maturity. And, and it's not God's intention for us to remain spiritual infants and spiritual children the rest of our lives. We are to grow in the unity of the faith, into the image of, of Christ, in the knowledge of who he is, right? And, and we are to grow towards spiritual maturity. And, and the way that we grow up and progress in our, and mature in our faith is directly related to our knowledge and our understanding of who Jesus is and his very nature and the power that he has to save us. We grow up in the knowledge of the Son of God. Now understand, we are absolutely, without question, to have a childlike faith in Christ. Right? And that what that means is we need to have a faith you know, in Christ the way, you know, the way that, that a child trusts a parent. Right? Children, without hesitation, they trust and they depend upon their parents. It's instinctive. Right? And that's the way that we're to trust God. We're to, we're to lean on him and trust in him that way. But, but we're not to have a childish faith immature faith, which remains immature and ignorant of the knowledge of God. Right? We're not to remain ignorant and immature. We are expected by God to grow in our understanding of him. We're expected to wrestle with the theological understandings of who he is and, and what he is in his nature and who we are in light of who he is. In fact, it's God's will that we grow up. It's God's will that we grow in our understanding of who he is so that our faith can actually grow as well because your faith is directly related to what you know about him. I'm going to say that again because I think this is an easy thing to overlook and miss. Your faith in God is directly related to what you know about him. The more you know about him, the stronger your faith will be. It's as simple as that. The less that you know about him, the weaker your faith will be. 
And that's exactly what we're going to see in the, in the text today. These disciples of Christ, they, they, they're finding out that their faith is weak because what they know about Jesus is really lacking. And so Jesus, in essence, is telling his disciples, these fairly new Christians, y'all need to grow up. Now, before we jump into the text, it's important for us to understand that we, again, are at a place that's at a turning point in the story. Mark has some very clear you know, turning points, and we see this again here. There's going to be a big shift that's about to take place in what Jesus is doing and the power that he puts on display. As you know, that Jesus emerged from the, you know, on the scene in the book of Mark as a nobody from nowhere. He was somebody that nobody knew right, from a, a, a part of the world that nobody even cared about, and he began to preach the, the gospel. He began his ministry declaring that the, that, that, the king, that the time is now, the kingdom is, is here, and the way that you get into the kingdom is to repent and believe the gospel. And Jesus calls his first disciples to follow him, and then he goes to the area of Galilee preaching this message, and then performing incredible miracles to prove that his message is authoritative. He, he casts out demons. He even heals people of, of all kinds of illnesses and injuries and deformities. And, and as we talked about, <clears throat> based on this message and based on the miracles that he's done, people had one of two reactions. They either rejected Christ and his message or they believed in the message. And the difference between those people was not intelligence, and it wasn't their background, and it wasn't their station in life, but what, what the difference was, was the condition of their heart. Those who rejected Christ have a hardened, unchanged heart, and those who believed are people who had hearts changed by God. And what we come to understand very clearly is salvation is 100% the work of God. Because it's God who changes the heart, and it's God is the one who makes the seed grow inside of a changed heart. And throughout this story, to this point, Jesus has these huge crowds that are just following him around everywhere he's going. Massive crowds. And, and some of these people are his disciples and believe, but there are people there that don't. Right? And, and among them are people who, who are in the crowd, like the Pharisees, who think that he's demon-possessed, and they're looking for a reason to, to kill him. There are other people like his family who just think he's absolutely nuts. Right? And, and, and so they want to take him home and basically get him committed. Right? And in this story, Jesus has been you know, finding himself in lots of conflict. He's been in conflict with powerful men like the Pharisees, and he's also been in conflict with the powerful spiritual forces of darkness like demons and even Satan himself. And Jesus has been up to the task in every single instance. His power has been on display. Right? Well, at this point in the story, Jesus is going to ramp things up. Right? You see that through his miracles to this point, he has revealed the nature of who he is, the Son of God. And he's demonstrated that his message is authoritative. But in this next section, he is going to a whole new level. Like, he's not just going to do miracles now. He is going to do mind-blowing miracles. As if healing somebody wasn't, like, good enough, right? He's going to do stuff that's really going to leave no doubt. Like, like what we're going to see today is he's going to calm the storm, right? But then, as we explore further, we're going to see that he's not only going to cast out demons, he's going to cast out a legion of demons out of someone, right? And if, and if that wasn't enough, then he's going to actually heal somebody, not just heal them, but somebody that's had an uncurable disease that they've had for decades. He's going he's to heal her simply by her just touching the hem of his garment. And if that's not compelling enough, he's not just going to heal somebody, he's going to bring a young girl back from the dead as a demonstration of his power. This is going to be next level kind of stuff. And in this text, as we look at them now and, and through the, through after Easter, 
what we're going to see is that these texts carry with them two important developing themes that we have seen so far that we really need to keep in mind. Number one, that Jesus is, as Mark said from the beginning, the Son of God. That he is God in the flesh. This is, this is a theme that's been developing from the very opening verse. That, that Jesus is God in the flesh. That he is the Son of God. And then secondly, as we've been discovering, that because Jesus is God, that means he is completely sovereign. That, that he is completely in control. That he is all-powerful. And that he is, is sovereign over everything, including salvation. And, and we're going to see these themes right, being further developed as we go in these texts in the coming weeks, as well as the rest of, of the book. And, and with that, then, it's important as we go along that we commit ourselves to read this text and all the texts that we come in contact with with the intention of understanding what the text actually is saying. Because contrary to popular opinion, every scripture in the Bible has really one meaning. It doesn't have multiple meanings. It doesn't have meanings based on a person's opinion or perspective. There's really only one meaning to every text. Now, there's lots of applications. I want you to hear me. Like, you can take any verse of the Bible, and there's a thousand different ways you can apply it to your life. And some people can, can apply it one way, and other people will apply it another way because the God's word is, is life-giving that way. Right? But there's really only one meaning of each text, and that meaning is what God himself intends for it to mean. And so for us, it's important that we discern that meaning. And the way we do that is to keep in mind two important foundational things. Two things that we'll talk about forever. Number one is the context of Scripture. What is the immediate and historical context of the verse? Because each Scripture derives its meaning from the context, not outside of the context. It means what it means in context. Secondly... The thing that we need to keep in mind is our starting point of our theology. We all have one. We all have one. Is our starting point, is it, is it God or is it man? Because, because this is going to heavily influence how we read every single text. Do we have a man-centered theology that thinks that it's always about us or about men? Or, or do we have a God-centered theology where we, we try to find how every verse is about God and how every verse is, is about about Jesus, right? Regardless of what, you know, what our emotions or our feelings are saying about us. So with that, the context in, in our theological starting point, those are, those are important for us. Now, now that we kind of got that out of the way, this particular text, as if, if you read it and you, you just kind of like, just see it from the surface, you'll see there are really two purposes for this text from the outset. outset. And the first purpose of this text is to demonstrate the awesome authority of the Son of God over the force of nature. That is absolutely right on the surface. That is very clear. It is, it is to put on full display the power, the magnificent, awesome power of Jesus Christ. That's easy for us to see in the text. The second purpose is to reveal the inadequate faith of the disciples because that is what we see in this text. The disciples, right, they're following Jesus, but they still have a very immature faith because they lack understanding of who Christ is. And this episode is going to reveal to these men that they have a lot of growing up to do. So now with all that out of the way, by way of introduction, turn with me to the book of Mark. We're going to read uh, beginning in, in verse 35. And it says, On that day, 
When evening had come, he said to them, let us, grow, let us go across to the other side. Now, what we need to understand is, is that when Mark says, says, on that day, this is not simply just a turn of phrase to just you know, create a segue or a transition in the story. Right? When Mark uses this word, what he's referring to is, is the fact that this is the very same day, a long day that began all the way back in chapter 3, verse 22, where Jesus he, if you remember, uh, I, think, I think it was Matthew's gospel records that Jesus cast out the demon of a, a blind and, um, uh, and mute man. And the Pharisees, they saw that, and this is where Mark picks up the story, they saw that and they said that he did this by the power of Satan. And Jesus confronts them and tells them how wrong they are. And then he also then warns them about blasphemy in the Holy Spirit. This is the same day. Right? And then if you remember, right after that, he's preaching in somebody's home, and he's teaching people, and then, um, and, and then um, his family shows up because they want to take him by force, because they think he's crazy. They want to take him and remove him and take him home to Galilee so that he can get better because they think he's lost his mind. And Jesus then tells them that those who, love, who, who, who follow him and, and do the will of the Father, those are the ones that are his family. Right? And then after that, same day, he moves outside, and a crowd's following him around. So what does he do? He gets into a boat right, and gets a little bit away from shore, and out there in the Galilean sun, he begins to preach, and he begins to teach them in, in parables. And, and the parables he tells is the parable of the sower, the parable of the lamp, the parable of the seeds growing, and the parable of the mustard seed. And all of this has happened in that same day. And now it is finally evening, and the sun is going down, and he is, he is preaching, and he's ministering, and he is now exhausted and says, let us cross, go across to the side, or in other words, let us get out of here, let us get away from this crowd, right? and it says, and leaving the crowd, he, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, right? and the other boats were with him, or in other words, they didn't even bother to go ashore to pick up supplies, they just picked up the anchor, and they started making their way across the five-mile journey in order to get to the other side to get away from the crowd because it was a very long and exhausting day. Have, how many of you have experienced a day where you just wanted the day to be over? Like you're just exhausted from the top of your head, tip of your toes. That's right. That is what we're talking about here. Right? Jesus had been, was being followed by a crowd of people everywhere he went. He was so busy ministering to people and healing and preaching. And if you remember, it, it said that there was times he didn't even have time to eat. They were, they, he was so busy that he wasn't even eating. And, and, and his family, that was one of the reasons why they thought he was crazy. And so now, after a day like that, after this long day, he's so wiped out, and he leaves the area, and, 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 and they're doing this so that Jesus can get some rest. And in fact, what we see is Jesus immediately in the, in the text, he falls asleep. And then it says in verse 37, and a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Now, when we read this description, it's really kind of easy to underestimate the severity of the storm. When we read these Bible texts, sometimes we forget that, that they're just kind of like reporting the facts and not really kind of fully developing the ideas. They're just kind of giving us, you know, the basic details, right? But, but, but what, what happens is, is Mark says a great windstorm arose. And, and, and what you need to understand, this is not an ordinary windstorm. 
from the Greek, what we do is get this idea is that this is a, a severe squall. This, this, is, this is hurricane force kind of winds. The Sea of Galilee actually rested 690 feet below sea level, and there were gorges around it that, that kind of funneled the wind in here. And there could be severe windstorms. This was a severe, life-threatening kind of storm. I, I mean, we live in Boron, right? So if there's anything we know, we know what wind is, right? So we know, right, when there's wind, and we know when there's really wind. And then we know when there's a windstorm, and we know what, what a severe windstorm looks like, and I think we would recognize a, a life-threatening windstorm, okay? This is what he's talking about, a terrifying, life-threatening windstorm, right? And, and, and in the Greek text, it, it also implies that the waves themselves were so big, it's as if there was an earthquake that was shaking the entire lake. There's this just violent storm. This is not just a regular storm. This is a violent superstorm, right? This is a, we're all going to die, kind of storm. This is like, there's no hope kind of storm. And then storm is so bad, these veteran sailors, these fishermen who have been sailing the Sea of Galilee all their lives, who have seen windstorms, right, they are just full-on panicking. But notice it says that Jesus, he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. Just think about that contrast. During this hurricane force windstorm, that, that, you know, with, wave, with, with waves beating up the boat and beginning to fill them up, right, with water, and, and Jesus is asleep. I mean, the boat is pitching up and down. How many of you have ever been, like, deep sea fishing and, like, when it was bad weather, like, the boat was really kind of rocking, right? Okay, yeah, it's, it's worse than that. Like, 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 the boat is really pitching and it's being beaten up by the waves and, and water splashing in and the ocean spray is, like, getting everybody wet, and what's Jesus doing? He's sleeping. This is one of the, the many contrasts that you can see in this story. And, and what this tells us is two really, really important things. Number one, that Jesus is fully human. He is a man. Right? And, and the thing is that sometimes we get, we get lost in that. We forget that part. Right? We, we, we know he's God, but, but we forget like, that he's fully man. Jesus needed to sleep. Right? Jesus sometimes gets hungry, which means he needs to eat. He has a full human nature. He gets thirsty. He gets sleepy. Right? He feels pain. He feels exhaustion. He experiences a full range of human emotions just like we, except that he has no sin. Jesus was literally one of us. Brothers and sisters, that should encourage you. He was one of us. In fact, that's exactly why, we, why he was baptized. If you remember, he got baptized Right? And, and, it was, and, it, and the, the baptism was a, re, a baptism for repentance of sin. Well, Jesus didn't need to repent of his sins. Why did he get baptized then? He got baptized so that he can identify with us. He became one of us. He took on a full human nature. He walked in our shoes. He knows what, we've, what we're going through. And he knows what it's like to be completely exhausted just like you do. I don't know about you, but that kind of encourages me. Secondly... Jesus sleeping during this storm tells us that Jesus, as contrasted against the panicking sailors, Jesus was completely at peace. Right? And the reason why he's at peace is because he was completely trusting in the Father. He was completely trusting in the Father. He knew that he was safe in the Father's hands regardless of what the circumstances were. He knew 
that there was no need to panic because God the Father was in complete control. But not everyone else was there, had that same attitude. In fact, they were practically losing their minds. Notice what it says. They woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, again, this is another one of those areas that the English doesn't really kind of give us full justice of the urgency of what they're saying. This is not simply a plea for help. This is a rebuke. This is not just, Lord, help us. No, this is, we're going to die, Jesus, and you don't even care. That's kind of the attitude. That's the tone of what they're saying. They are not only terrified, but they're upset. They're mad they're, 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 that Jesus seems to be unconcerned. Have you ever been like that where, where not only you're scared, but you're angry at the same time, right, because of the circumstances? Yeah, they were both scared and upset. And then it says, and he awoke, and he rebuked the wind and the sea, and said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Now, this text is, is one that many of us love. I mean, we just sing about it, right? The idea that Jesus speaks and he calms the storm in our lives, that we lay our worries down, right? Peace be still. Those words give us hope. And they should give us hope because it's in him we trust. But I want you to see there's also a lot more to this text than just that. The first thing I want you to notice is that it says there was a great calm. And this is important because this is not simply, he's not just stating the fact that suddenly things became calm. This is a contrasting statement. Whenever you see contrasting statements and words, you've got to put the the pieces together. This is a contrasting statement of what kind of storm there was. Remember, he said it was a great storm, and now he says it's a great calm. The storm was sudden, and it was life-threatening, and it was terrifying. And then at the word of Jesus, there was an instantaneous calm. And it wasn't just a calm, it was a great calm. It's, it wasn't like that Jesus just spoke and the storm began to subside and die down like it does out here. Right? We know what that's like. It's windy and it doesn't just stop being windy. It's windy and then it slowly dies down out here. Right? The change here was instant. It, there was hurricane force winds one second and perfectly still the next. Right? We have waves that are washing over the boat one second and then calm and placid the next. This was a stunning, this was a stunning, startling miracle. If you'd have been there too, you'd have been like, what just happened? They wake Jesus up in a panic, and he simply just utters the words, peace, be still, and everything goes from chaos to peace in an instant. And and in this, we see a clear picture of Jesus emerge. In this moment, we see this fully human Jesus, exhausted, and he's sleeping because he physically needs to rest. And in the next moment, we see Jesus, the sovereign creator of the universe, exercising absolute authority and mastery over his creation. He speaks, and it happens. This is, this is a picture, again, of Genesis 1. We see Jesus for who he really is, Fully God and fully man. Jesus is God incarnate. And, and then Jesus turns to the disciples, right? And he asks the weirdest possible question, right? Because if you don't recognize this is weird, you're not paying attention. This is a weird question. Why are you so afraid? What? I mean, we know 
that this is Jesus. We know it, right? Here and now, we know that, that, that who he is, and we know what he can do. But in that moment, they didn't. I mean, they saw him perform miracles, but they had no idea that he had this kind of power. So this is a very odd question, because you and I both know what the answer would be if, you know, if he was asked, well, why are you so afraid? We'd be like, well, because we was about to die. That's why I was afraid. I, I, mean, I mean, I don't know about Peter over there, because he thinks he's tougher than everybody, but, but I was scared because I thought we were going to die. That's, I mean, every time I think my life is threatened, I get scared. Isn't that natural, normal? I, I mean, I ain't never seen wind like that before. I'd never seen waves that big in my life before, and the water's just pouring into the boat, and I just thought for sure that we're going to drown. I mean, you know, we're out here in the middle of the lake anyway, and they invented, like, life vests yet anyway. So, I mean, like, what am I supposed to do? So, yeah. I was scared. I thought we was going to die. I mean, I just think it's kind of a silly question, Jesus. I mean, why would you even ask me that? Why am I afraid? Why would anybody else be afraid? Right? Now, the truth is, Jesus, he already knew why they were afraid. But he asked this question as hyperbole because he, this question is supposed to get their attention because he's trying to communicate two very important things. Number one, you have nothing nothing, absolutely nothing to fear and be afraid of if you're with Christ. That's what he's saying to them. You have nothing to be afraid of if you're with me. Nothing. Right? And the second thing he's telling them is, you don't really know who I am yet. That's the second thing. He's revealing to them that you don't know. That's why he asked the question, have you still no faith? Now, the question that he asked here, I want you to understand, he's not saying that these men have no faith at all in Christ. Because evidently they do. They believed because they're following him. Their hearts have been changed. Right? And they're willing to go where Jesus goes. And they know that, that people think he's crazy. And they know that, that he's already getting sideways with, 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 um, with the political forces and that it could be dangerous. But they're still willing to follow him. Right? So they do have some faith in him. What he's saying is, why is your faith so immature? Because right? it was just an immature faith. In fact, one commentator notes that Jesus saying... This, that why do you still have no faith, indicates that Jesus had expected them by this time to have demonstrated more of a mature faith. Danny Aiken in his commentary says, he says, by now you should have a greater, by, by now that they should have had a greater comprehension of who Jesus is and an incre increased faith in him. They should have already by now kind of known who he was. But notice, it says, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him. And, and this great fear here is, is meaning like, so they were scared of the, the storm and now they're even more scared of Jesus, right? This is startling to them. The reason why they're struggling is these men didn't fully know who Christ was because they had very immature faith and they needed to grow up. And what we're going to see is this is going to be an ongoing process for the rest of the book of Mark because over and over again, they're going to be confronted with the fact that their knowledge and understanding of Jesus is still too small. And it'll be all that way, it'll be that way all the way to Jesus' resurrection. And if there is a problem that the church at large faces today, it is the fact that so many people have an immature faith rooted in such a small view of Jesus. Most people's view of God is way too small. Most people's view of God is he's there for me to, to give me stuff or he's there to make me more moral. 
Jesus is my homeboy. I hate that expression, by the way. Right? I mean, he's your friend because he, he says he's your friend. Right? But let's be, let's be careful. Like, he ain't, we ain't friends like, on equal terms. Right? He's your friend because he just decided to love me in spite of me. Right? Every man-centered theology is rooted in a view of God that's just too small. Every heresy is rooted in a view of God that's just too small. Because the fact is that, that, that God must fit their understanding. Right? And, and let me just let you on a secret. If God makes complete sense to you and he fully fits in your understanding, your view of God is too small. Because God, by definition, is bigger than your imagination. Right? You don't even know how big 96 billion light years is. You can't even imagine that, and God's bigger than that. So by definition, he must be bigger than your imagination. But the thing is, is we have a tendency to want to gravitate towards a God that we can wrap our arms around and understand. That's too small. They have, a, they have a, a God that fits their emotional understandings. They, right, they have a small view of Christ. And, and that's what we see here. Right? And these men, they have, they've been with Jesus, and they've been witnessing firsthand the miracles he's done. I mean, you think about like when they were in the synagogue, and this guy had this withered up hand, and he says, stretch out your hand, and boom, it's like it's healed. Right? Like that's crazy stuff. And, and they're st- now they're freaking out because they don't fully, really understand that, that God in the flesh is in the boat with them. This, their understanding was just too small, and so they needed to grow up. Now, there's a lot that we can take away from this story. There's, there's a lot here. But perhaps the low-hanging fruit of this text, and the one thing that we can take from this that really is encouraging to all of us, as we sing about, and it's the one that most preachers will talk about and spend the most time talking about, is, is that no matter what comes your way, Christ has the power to save us. That Christ can rescue us through any storm. And that is, that is absolutely true. And there's nothing that life can throw at you. There's nothing that life can do to you that Christ cannot handle. There's nothing that the devil can do to you that, Je- that Jesus can't get you through. There's nothing that you will face today, right? Whether it's financial ruin or having somebody walk out on you, or, or cancer, or difficulty at work. There's nothing that you face that Jesus cannot deliver you through. You are safe in the hands of Jesus. And because of that, we should trust him. And we should turn to him in faith. And we should have a childlike faith. The way that your children know to run to you in danger, you should run to Christ in danger, trusting him, knowing that in every circumstance he can get you through. We need to trust him that way. And that is an important lesson that we can take from this text. And this is an encouraging lesson that we can take from this text. This is a hope-inspiring lesson that we need to hold on to no matter what life brings to you, no matter what storm that you are going through, Jesus can help you get through that. But brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to grow. Because if that's all you see in that text, then we still have a childish and immature faith. A faith that's not really fully grown up. Because ultimately it's not about us. The important, as important as this truth is, that's not the central point of the text. The point of this text is Jesus. Jesus, the sovereign Lord, has power over creation all creation, and he is mighty to save because of it. It's about him. 
It's always about him. Every verse of scripture is about him. The reason why we can trust in Christ, no matter what the circumstances are, is because he's completely sovereign. That's the point. Jesus is not just some anointed man standing on the boat. He is not just some powerful created being. He's not some cool rabbi that knows some magic tricks. He is God incarnate. And he, being God, is completely in control. And because of that, our hope is rooted in that. He's not mostly in control. He's not partially in control. He's completely and totally in control. Right? There's a stark contrast here. There's this great life-threatening windstorm. And Jesus is peacefully sleeping. Because why? He's in control. And, and his disciples wake him up in a panic. And Jesus says you know, some words. And the wind storm dies suddenly and instantaneously. You know, and becomes a great peace. This is an awesome display of the power of Jesus who's full in control. I'm telling you, if we were standing right here right now and there was a windstorm that was about to knock the building down here, right, and somebody walked out and said, peace be still, and went calm, every one of us would really rethink what we know about the world around us, right? That's an awesome miracle beyond comprehension. And the thing that we need to understand is that he is not just sovereign over some things. He is sovereign over everything. Every molecule in the entire universe is not, it, it, there's, not a, there's not a molecule in the entire universe that's beyond his control. Right? The Bible says that in him all things hold together. Right? Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1, he says, he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is literally the image, the very image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, for by him, notice this, for by him all things were created. What things? All things. In heaven, outside of this universe, and on earth. Right? Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he was before all things. And look at this, and in him all things hold together. All things exist by his Sovereign will and power. He holds the universe together. All things. Brothers and sisters, we serve a God that's beyond our comprehension. Jesus is mightier and bigger than we can possibly understand. And this storm is a picture of that. Right? And there's a truth that people struggle with that prevents them from fully understanding just how big God is. There's a truth that people struggle with that causes them to to struggle, to completely just let go and allow him to be God and just fully trust in him. And the truth that people so many wrestle with is, is that God is completely and totally sovereign over everything. Because if God is not sovereign over all, he's not sovereign at all. If he's not the Lord over all, he's not the Lord at all. If there's something that, that is beyond his control, then he is not God. That means there's something greater than him. If there's something he does not know, then he is not God. There's something outside of him. Because by definition, God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and he is everywhere, and he's all-loving and all-good. And he is, he is in love with us. There's not a single speck of the entire universe that's outside of his will or plan. 
And so many people struggle with this truth, and because they, and they, and they do so because they have a view of God that really is just too small. And they find it themselves at times struggling to just let go and trust God to get them through, and, 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 that, and to trust God that he is all-knowing and all-powerful and all-good, and he is just, and he always does what is right. But hear me. The reason why, ultimately, you and I can trust Christ, the reason why we can really trust and depend on him is because he's sovereign. The reason why you and I can trust Jesus and depend upon him to save you and to save us is because there's nothing beyond his control. There's nothing that can keep him from saving you. You can trust him with your life. You can trust him with your eternity. You can trust him with your cancer diagnosis. You can trust him when your loved ones die. You can trust him when the economy goes sideways and it has and it will again. You can trust him as the country continues to sell out for the, the moral sexual revolution and changes you know, everything where right is wrong and wrong is right now. You can trust him when the hostility of the, of the crowds grow towards Christians and continues to grow. And brothers and sisters, it's just beginning. We know it. You can trust him even when they take you to the stake and they kill you. The reason why you can trust in him, regardless of what comes your way and how big the storm is, is because there's nothing bigger than your God. He is sovereign. There's nothing beyond his control. There's nothing beyond his power. There's nothing that can happen that, that is beyond his ability to work all things out for your good and his glory. And it's precisely that Jesus is sovereign is why we can trust and depend on him. And, and that's why, that's what we see here in this storm. Another thing that this text teaches us is sometimes we need to struggle and go through difficulty uh, to grow in our understanding of God, just like these men did. Jesus has been proclaiming the gospel and he's been teaching them about the kingdom and he has done incredible miracles to demonstrate his power and still they don't understand. They don't understand who Jesus, who he is. Because they needed to be shown that. They needed to be shown who Jesus is and how powerful he is. And, and the thing that we need to realize is this storm, this is not an accident. Right? They didn't leave there and, and, and this didn't catch Jesus by surprise. Like, oh, oh, wait, oh, we're, there's a storm. This didn't catch him off guard. Right? He knows exactly what's happening. He knew exactly what was going to happen when he left. He knew how they would react. He is all powerful and all knowing. And he knew exactly what was going to happen before they, they even left. You see, it was this crisis is where they came face to face with the fact that their understanding of God was inadequate. That their simple faith was shown to be very immature. And then they knew what they knew about him was lacking. That their their lack of trust in Christ revealed their lack of understanding because that is the fact that we need to just hold on to. Your ability to trust in Christ is directly related to what you know about him because you won't trust him any more than what you believe that you can trust in him. So your ability to trust in Jesus is directly related to what you know about him. And sometimes what we know about Christ will only come through difficulty and struggle. I mean, let's face it. 
It's really easy to have faith in Christ and love Him when the sun is shining. It's easy to say, praise the Lord when all your bills are paid. It's really easy to worship Him when everybody in your family is healthy. But what about when the storm clouds in your personal life begin to grow? What about when the winds of change sweep through your, through your job and, and you wonder if you're going to even be employed in another week? What happens when the doctor looks you in the eye and says, yeah, we need to run some more tests? What about when your, your, one of your kids you know, has been hiding things from you and they're really important things and you realize they've been living a whole different life that you didn't know about? Or what about when the worst possible scenario in your life happens? Your worst possible day happens. What about then? Years ago, um, I was counseling a couple who were really struggling to make it in their marriage. And they had a lot of big challenges in their lives. And I, I really say that, that's like an understatement. Right? There were huge challenges. And, and, and both of them were very overwhelmed by it all. And they were both, they both felt unappreciated, they both felt misunderstood, they both felt right for feeling the way that they felt. And, and, and to make it worse, there was a lot of external things that was really like weighing on them. There were a lot of external things that were holding them down. And, and it was like this perfect storm. And, and the wife came to me and, and she told me, she goes, she said that her husband was really considering giving up and just walking away. Like, like, she, like he just couldn't take it anymore. Like, he just didn't think he was going to be able to make it. And she broke down, and she said, I just don't know what to do. And then she says, in her own very small, man-centered faith, she says, I've been following God, and I've been going to church, and I've been trying, and I've been doing. I've been trying to live a life that honors Him, and I don't know what God wants from me. And I said to her, I said, what he wants for you is to trust him. To lean on him and trust him. Right? And, and, and she looked at me and she was visibly upset when I said that. And as a tear ran down her eye, you know, I could see in her face this pained, angry expression. And she, she said to me, I don't really think I want to hear that from you right now. And I said to her, well, I understand that. And I totally get where you're coming from. But this is where the rubber meets the road. Right? This is the intersection. This is the place and the time you need to decide whether you really right, are going to trust him like you said and that your faith is actually a real thing because it's easy to think you trust God when things are good. It's only when you are in a hard place that you really find out what you really believe about God do you really believe that he is what he claimed to be and that he's big enough and powerful enough to get you through this? Now more than ever, I told her, you need to lean into who he is and you need to trust that he will carry you through. And then I prayed with her and guess what? It got worse. Things began to fall apart in a bad way. But then she held on with nothing else in her hands, she held on to Jesus, trusting that God is in control. And then God began to work in both of their hearts, and they decided that they could make it work. And they did. Miraculously. By the grace of God. And, and they, they made it through one huge storm after the next. I'm going to talk about storms that would break just about anybody else I know. I'm just telling you, there are just some things that were happening. I just, I don't know how they made it. Except the grace of God.
They both continued to trust in God, and he was faithful to carry them through. And, and the reason why he was able to carry them through is because he's sovereign. And the reason why they were able to hold on to hope when all seemed lost is because they, they grew in their understanding that God was big enough and powerful enough to get them through anything. And they grew in their understanding that God really is in control. And, and that's the picture that we see in this text here is the followers of Christ thinking that they know who Jesus is, finding out what they, what they know about Jesus is just way too small. And Jesus uses the storm and puts on display who he really is and just how powerful he is to demonstrate that, that his followers need to grow up. That's what this text is about. Now, as we consider how to apply these things to our lives, the obvious application to make um, is, is that we need to make up our minds to trust Christ no matter what happens in our lives. And the reality is, is I don't care if you remember everything else I said. If this is the only thing you remember about the sermon, right, then this, then this is good, that's good, good for me. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that, right? Remember for the fact that no matter what you go through in life, that Christ, right, can get you through it, that you can trust in him, that you, we need to believe and trust that he can get us through whatever storm that we face. No matter what you're facing today, no matter what you might face tomorrow, Jesus will get you through. You can depend upon that. Jesus is sovereign and there's nothing he can't handle. So just throw yourself upon him and trust in him. So when all seems lost, and when the world doesn't make any more sense, and when it seems like everybody else is against you, and you feel like you have nothing else to hold on to, you will discover that Jesus is all you ever needed in the first place. Secondly, in order for you to really believe that, we need to grow in our faith and our understanding of who Christ is. We need to mature in our walk with God so that we really know that we know, that we know, that we know who he is. And there is only one way to do that. And that is to grow up in our understanding of who he is, grow up in our understanding of his nature, and grow up in our understanding of who we are in light of who he is. The problem oftentimes is that we start with us trying to understand the world and God. We need to start with him and understand ourselves in light of him. And the only way that you're going to be able to do that and to grow that way it is for us to come to God's word and actually learn what it says. Right? Your spiritual maturity is directly proportional to you understanding what this says. Like, that's not what I think. It's just what it is. Your spiritual maturity is directly proportional to what you how much you understand what this, what this says. Now, you can certainly be a baby Christian all of your life and still be saved. It happens. But if you're going to grow to spiritual maturity, really depending upon Christ and trusting in him to get you through the worst of life, God calls you to understand what this says. And to do that, we need to be willing to come to it honestly. We need to come to the text with an open and honest heart, and we need to be willing to set some stuff aside. We need to be willing to set aside our smaller picture of God. We need to be willing to set aside sometimes even our emotions and our feelings we need to be willing to set aside some of the traditions that we learned when we were kids. Sometimes we need to set aside even some of our, some of our favorite, what, what, some of the teachings of our favorite preachers. I know that for me, like in my life, there have been things I've been holding on to that I heard somewhere else that sounded so good to me, and I realized, look at the text, it's actually ruined on what it says. Sometimes we need to 
overcome our fear of the words like theology and doctrine and our fear of labels and our preconceived ideas that we bring to the text. We need to seek to diligently come before God with open eyes and open minds and open hands and actually study the word in its context and, and ask for the Lord to reveal to us what we actually, what he's actually saying. That's what we need. And I promise you, if we will actually do that, if we will study this book with all of our hearts and seek God diligently with all that we are, right, we will grow in our understanding of who he is and just how awesome and powerful he is. And we will see without a doubt, and we will know to the very core of who we are that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and we can trust him to do what he's promised to do, which is to save us from our sins and to take all things, my favorite, one of my favorite verses, Romans right, 8.28, to take all things and work them out for our good, even in the worst of our storms. You can trust Christ no matter what comes your way because he is good and he is sovereign. Now, to wrap up this um, there's actually always one application left. And that is to appeal to those who might not have actually put their faith in Christ yet or believed. Or maybe you're someone who's been struggling and, and, and hanging on by a thread. Right? And, and that admonition and that application always is to do what Jesus said, is to repent and believe the gospel. And the gospel is something that, that everybody needs to hear and Christians need to hear over and over again. And so if you indulge me really quickly, I just want to share with you the hope that we have. You and I were created in the image of God after his own image and his likeness. But that image was, was distorted by sin, which made us at odds with God, making his, us his enemy. And the relationship that we were designed to have with him has been severed. And as a result man's, of, that, of man's sin, God's wrath and justice you know, abides upon mankind. And one day all men will stand before God and they will give an account for their life and, and, and they will be found guilty and God will rightly and justly consign them to hell. And there's nothing we can do to fix that on our own. It's not anything we can do. But then God in his great mercy and his grace sent his son Jesus Christ into the world fully God and fully man as we saw there on that boat in that storm and he lived a perfect life that you couldn't live, and he died to pay a penalty that you couldn't possibly pay. So that if you would repent and believe the gospel, you would be saved and given entrance into the kingdom of God, and you would receive eternal life. The gospel is really simple. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. God in the flesh traded places with you on the cross. Right? He took upon himself your sin and bore in his body the wrath of the holy and righteous God that you deserve. And then in return, that wasn't enough. And then in return, he gives to you his righteousness so that you can stand before God without fear, not as a stranger, but as family. And Jesus rose from the grave proving that all that is true. And that payment has been made and that payment has been accepted. And you, brothers and sisters, have been set free. And all you need to do is repent and believe the gospel. And the rest of us Christians need to do is to spend the rest of our lives repenting and believing the gospel because we're all going to fall down. And our only hope is one thing, that is Jesus Christ. Our only hope is to turn to him and grab a hold of him and say, I'm trusting in you. I can't fix me, only you can do it. I'm not sovereign enough to change me, but you are Lord. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for your grace and your, your 
mercy. I thank you for your word and, and the conviction that it brings to us. Father, may, my, may, may all of our hearts, Lord, hunger for you and desire after you and want to know more about you, Lord. May we come to the text always looking for you and what you're saying and the hope that we have in you. And I pray, Father God, that you would just change us and help us to walk in this, Lord, that we can trust in you. We have hope in you because you are in control. That the worst possible thing that could happen in our lives doesn't surprise you and is not beyond your control, Lord. So whatever the diagnosis may be, Lord, I trust you. Whatever happens with the rest of the world, I trust you. Whatever happens in the next election cycle, as crazy as it is, and as my heart, you know, cries out for my country, Lord, I trust you. Whatever happens in the world of finance, I trust you. Whatever comes our way, Lord, we trust you. Because you are good. And you are right and you are just. And all things work out for the counsel of your will. Father, you, Lord, are sovereign. And because of that, now I can rest during the storm. That the storm can rage outside and I can close my eyes and I can go to sleep, Lord, because you, Lord, are firmly in control. Father, make that the conviction of all of our hearts, Lord, that no matter what we're facing today, and I know some of the, some of our church members are facing some very difficult things, Lord, that whatever they're facing today, Lord God, that you would give them the assurance that, Lord, you got this. And they can just trust you. No, it's going to work out the way that's good for them and honors you. And I pray, Father God, that you're glorified in that. And I pray that you raise up the people here that we're willing to take that truth and share it to this community who desperately needs to hear just that. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.